just start by thanking everyone uh, for joining us on this panel. It's going to be a fun panel. We're going to hopefully make it very lively. I'm going to do quick introductions because really this is an all-star panel. I don't think anyone really needs an introduction. But Tristan Walker, the CEO and founder of Walker & Company. Uh, of course, Urban Magic Johnson, uh, the CEO and chairman of uh, Magic Johnson Companies. Uh, Beatriz Alvarado, the president and founder of MeToo and Troy Carter, the CEO and founder of Adam Factory and the general partner uh, at a new fund called Cross-Cultural Ventures. I'm Hamey Watt, by the way, from Upfront Ventures. Let's get this started really quick. Uh, Magic, you know I have to start with you. <laughs> um, you know, I think this is an interesting panel for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is all of you came from a different industry and then came into a new industry and, and, and really hit the ground running with greatness. And Magic, yours is probably going to be the most legendary transition of all time, being a, uh, an all-time uh, an NBA champion at five championships, uh, all-time assist leader. Um, the accolades go on and on. But the transition to business is maybe even more exciting and maybe even more legendary. Um, and so would you tell us a little bit about that journey? Well, first of all, you know, it, to get here it took... In the beginning, it took a lot of mentors and um, uh, plan for who I feel the greatest owner ever in sports, Dr. Jerry Buss. Not only was he my boss, but he became a mentor and a father figure to me. And he really helped shape my mind in terms of business because he allowed me to see the Laker books and he taught me how the Lakers made money so that allowed me to now understand the business of basketball, not just being a player. Did you know before you retired that you were going to do business after you oh, retired? Oh, yeah. You because two okay. of my two dreams were to play in the NBA and to become a businessman. And so then the next thing that I did was I asked Dr. Buss for the season ticket holders, all the seats and phone numbers. First, they were the all sit seats on, on the floor seats yeah. and their phone numbers and names. <laughs> And I cold called 20 of them t and took them to lunch, asked them to go out to lunch with surprise, me. Surprise, surprise. They all, they all say yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, I asked them questions what, like what made them successful and uh, what did it take? Uh, what do I need to look out for because I wanted to become a businessman after playing basketball? And I got great advice from all of them. And the last one was really important, that was Michael Ovitz. At that time, he was the biggest Hollywood agent on the planet. And he told me, he said, do you think you're the best basketball player? I said, yes. That means that you have to then get the best people around you to help you achieve your goals and dreams. So that's when I fired everybody. And when Started I got the fresh. best okay. money manager, the best accountant, best lawyer, and then he started helping helping me meet the right people that I had to meet to put me in a position to accomplish my goals and dreams. And the first thing we did was I became a, a Pepsi baller, yeah. and uh, we had the uh, D.C. area, uh, Maryland, D.C., a little bit of Virginia. And that's the first deal that I did that got me started and going. Well, let me, let me actually jump on that real quick, and then we'll transition, because I think Troy and, and everyone on the stage has sort of made a great business case for diversity not an obligation case, a business case. And I think you started 20 years ago thinking about this model, thinking about the urban communities, thinking about multicultural communities, and really how you could create 
real businesses there. So tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how that's sort of guided your, your business thesis. For me, it was, it was easy. It, you know, urban America, first of all, they wanted the same quality services and goods as everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and they're entitled to that, you know. And so when I looked across uh, the minority communities across the country, um, I said, man, we have a $2 trillion spending power, but no big retailers in our community. And then high demand, so I said, if I build them, I know they, they will come. Yeah. So I just gotta go out and partner with companies like Starbucks, like uh, Best Buy, on and on and on. Yeah. And uh, so the first thing I did was the movie theaters. Peter Gruber was one of those 20 CEOs I took to lunch. Okay, all right. He was running Sony at that time. And I said, look, man, the growth of your business have to be through urban America because you have you own Lowe's theaters, but there's no theaters in urban America. Let's partner. I, I'm going to have skin in the game. So I put up half the money. You put up half the money. And um, let's build Magic Johnson Theaters. And Love Peter it. decided to do that. And everybody said it would never work. Well, that first theater not too far from here on Crenshaw, the first year we came in the top 10 highest grossing theaters in wow. the nation. Wow. And so that opened everybody's eyes that we were making that type of money in the first year. So we went on to build six. AMC came in and bought us all out. And then the next thing I did was to go up to Seattle and knock on a guy's name, uh, door named Howard Schultz. Uh -huh. And I told him, look, Howard, Latinos and black folks, we like coffee too. <laughs> so we, we want Starbucks in our community. And I showed him the numbers how the theaters were performing. And um, Howard was a kid that grew up in Brooklyn, so he right. understood the minority community. Yeah. yeah. And he had to convince the board to do this, and so I became the first person or corporation to own Starbucks. We, yeah. we did the deal. And I told him one thing we had to do. We had to tweak our Starbucks in urban America because we don't eat the same desserts as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, you know. Scones aren't really our thing. No, we don't quite know what scones <laughs> Not are. there's anything wrong with scones. So I pulled the scones yeah. out. Something yeah. is wrong with scones with black folks. <laughs> They're so, kind of dry. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I had to take the scones out of my Starbucks and put in things like sweet potato pie, yes. pound cake, sakatumi cake. cake. Does anyone know what sakatumi cake is? OK, we got one or two. Yeah. Right so okay. everybody said it would never work ran stories all in the newspaper. Well, my per caps were 459. Love His per, per caps in the suburban stores were 451. Yeah. Yeah. We were making more money per store than his suburban yeah. stores were doing. So we end up building 125, and thank God we negotiate the mo multiple in the, in in the contract in okay. advance. <sighs> <laughs> and that really put the stamp on me as a legitimate businessman. And the same thing happened there. I put up half the money, he put up half the money. And so. Well, I remember when you launched it and it, it was inspiring to me as a young entrepreneur and uh, an investor. And you know, to see like people like Tristan, uh, I think you're, you're following in the same footsteps. And I think uh, the, the focus on quality product for our communities uh, is something that has been overlooked for a long time. Tristan, you want to talk a little bit about what you're up to and how you've thought about 
uh, forming Walker and Company and the whole journey? Yeah, I'll talk a lot about it. Um, <laughs> Don't go on too long, I'll cut you no, off. No, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm just so I have one, one view that I think is important. Um, I think the demographic shift happening in this country is very real. I think it's the greatest economic opportunity of my lifetime, whether that be for-profit or not-for-profit. Uh, there's a seeming arbitrage. Uh, you know, I started this company, Walker and Company, three years ago with this mission to make health and beauty simple uh, for people of color. And there are two views of the world that I had at the time and continue to have that I think few people in Silicon Valley, where I'm from, understand. And I think people in the aggregate really understand. The first uh, is this view uh, that I really do believe uh, all global culture is led by American culture, which is led by black culture in the US. Food, music, dance, et cetera. Uh, and more recently, Latino Asian culture, right? The big frustration of mine is my living in the earliest adopting region in the world and it's knowing very little about the earliest adopting culture, right? Like that discord doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and the second view of the world uh, that I had and continue to have, uh, I think all kind of health and beauty products companies are doomed for all types of business model and structural reasons. But one thing I really joke about uh, when I went out to raise money and I still joke about to this day and it speaks uh, to some of what Mr. Johnson was talking about, you know, I got fed up uh, going to these retail shops, having to go to aisle 36 uh, it's the ethnic aisle, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not really an aisle because it's a shelf, and it's usually in like the back right corner of, of that aisle. Where all the, all of the security cameras are <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And then I always have to reach to the bottom of that shelf, right, for this package that's dirty. And then there's a photo on it of like a 65-year-old bald black guy in a towel drinking a cognac on the packaging. And they assume that I should buy the product, right? Like this is very real. Yeah. Uh, and that sucks. Particularly considering how much money we spend on that stuff, we over-index in every single health and beauty vertical, how culturally influential a demographic group we are. And again, when you loop in Latino Asian consumers, we're the majority of this country in 20, 30 years. Now it's funny, you know, we've uh, kind of launched uh, you know, our first brand to really great success, and everybody still calls uh, you know, our company a, a company that focuses on a niche audience. Well, our audience is the majority of the world, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's fascinating how folks just are missing this arbitrage opportunity. Uh, and you know, I have like a Wall Street background, so when I see that arbitrage, like you got to pick up yeah. those pieces, right? Yeah. Let's, so uh, let's actually let's talk about the data real quick. So the data, what, uh, less than two percent of the tech community is is African or di is mm -hmm. diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly less than one percent of all the venture capital investment community Correct. is is diverse. Correct. But yet you have about a two trillion dollar spend in the African American community probably a equal or greater than in the, in the Latino community. Yeah. So why do you think that arbitrage still exists? And, and maybe I'll push it over to Troy, yeah. uh, another uh, sort of student of culture and student of, uh, of this opportunity. You, you've exploited it from a, a music industry standpoint and now moving on to tech. But why do you think that still exists today? Um, you know, I, don't, I, I think it's just really a matter of time. You know, I, being in LA and looking at even something as simple as, you look at television right now, and um, we kind of go through these stages, but you look at all of a sudden Empire, which was supposed to be a niche show right. on Fox, um, that kind of flew under the radar during pilot season and everything else, uh, becomes the biggest show on television more networks want to make shows that look like Empire now because they know, you know, a broad audience and a mainstream audience shows up. And it it's just like venture capital's pattern recognition and the more yeah, success. And, and, I, and I think in, the, in this particular case, you know, to, to Tristan's point, 
Um, our fund has, has really been, um, our thesis is around um, cultural investing, but built around consumer behavior and these large demographic shifts. And when you look at, we, we, we want to invest in founders who, who know, um, who know about their customer through experience. So when you yeah. look at the success of technology companies in emerging markets, there are Chinese founders that own the big companies in China where America couldn't, American companies really couldn't figure it out. And you know we're seeing the same in India. And uh, we, we think we're gonna see the same exact thing in the United States. So when you look at you know whether it's Tristan's company, whether it's Maven, whether it's Lynn Street and other companies that we're looking at, in that particular area, um, I think founders who understand the economic opportunity exactly. are gonna have an unfair advantage. That's so exactly. so for our fund, we look at it as a, as a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. You know, and, and we, we say, you know, from an investing standpoint, we're probably gonna see most of what everybody else sees, and people are only gonna see half of what we yeah. see. Right. You know, and, right. and really understand the opportunity. We actually, for one investment, we actually had to get on the phone and talk to the co-investor who, who was co-leading the round about, um, about African-American culture because huh. they didn't understand uh, that specific industry. And, um, and when, you know, it was a $9 billion market that we were talking about, you yeah. know, in that yeah. particular vertical. Yeah. But um, for us, we looked at it as a really great opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Beatrice? I, I, yeah, I'd love to add to that. Please. Um, uh, for people who don't know what Me Too is, we're a digital media company uh, for Latinos in this country and abroad, the largest in a very short time, in uh, shy of four years. And um, when we scratch our head thinking, why did nobody think about building a company like Me Too before? It's exactly to the point you're making because nobody really understood that Latinos spoke English, uh, that Latinos were not poor, uh, that Latinos were not a niche, to your point. Yeah. You know, when you see that millennial Latinos represent 25% of all millennials in this country, that's certainly not a niche. So people just didn't get it and didn't see the opportunity. So for us, it was incredible to be able to have that insight into, into the culture of, you know, w w what's the, pain point, right? As when you were pointing out with, with the beauty products in the worst aisle, for us it's, it was the same. I mean, one more soap opera and we were just going <laughs> to kill ourselves. Uh, and listen, I mean, God bless the soap operas, but uh, for our demographic, for young Latinos, not only in this country, but around the world, who were craving for so many years and were so, well, we have two problems in the US. One. If you go to English language media, which is what our youth consumes, we are so caricaturized there, right? It's like the very thick accented, the big boob women, the, it's just horrifying. And if you go to Spanish language media, it is just the same old stuff that we've been getting for 50 years. Just yeah. no reinvention in media, nothing that's grown with our demographic and with generations. So building a company that was digital first, where our audience was, that was English dominant, and that really understood the culture, and that was really authentic. Seems like a very easy, no-brainer kind of thing to do, yeah. yet nobody had done it. So people say, wow, you guys are killing it, you guys are crushing it, how do you do it? We just get it. I mean, it's just, it's us, right? Uh, but you know your customer, you know your 
consumer. See, the problem is people can't think outside the box. Everybody wants to do, do business still the same way right. the last 20 years, the last right. 25 years. And so you, the market has changed. And those who get it is going to last for a long time. Yeah. That's what you and Troy are talking about. And those who are going to get stuck in that same, okay, we got to just do it this way, are going to be left behind. And, and we see corporations who didn't get it, they're folding now. They're going bankrupt and so on. So the demos have to change, and you have to change with that. And then in the tech sector, the problem is they don't have anybody that look like us working there, so they can't tell them about right. the Latino community. Right. They, right. There's nobody there to tell them about African Americans and how we spend money and how we over-index and, and on and on and on. And then the last point I want to make, especially to these investors out here, before, minorities couldn't write a big check. Uh-oh, I'm going to say that one more time. Because the room went quiet. <laughs> Before, we couldn't write a big check. So they said, oh, we don't worry about minorities. They can't write this type of check. Well, now the game has changed. Troy can write a check. You can write a check. On and on and on. I can write a check. And I, can so, write a check. I can write a check. You can write a big check. <laughs> and, you know, and now a company like Guggenheim who says, Urban, we want you to lead the Dodger effort. Yeah. We want you to be not just part of the Dodgers with Guggenheim, but be a part of other deals with us. So they allowed me to buy just recently, uh, Equitrust is a $16 billion yes. uh, in a financial services business because I was a great partner. Yeah. I've been a great partner. Troy is an outstanding investor and these men and women should be looking at him to do more right. and listen to him. Tristan got a great company, you got a great company and we'll have more. And so now they have to look at us a little different. I look at the tech sector just like sports. Remember, none of us, we, we played on the field, but we couldn't own. Well, that's changed now. Michael Jordan owns the NBA team. I used to own the Lakers, but now the Dodgers, the Sparks, and now the new soccer team that's coming online here in LA. Can we get a little applause for that, please? So, so but my, my point is not for the applause, it's, it's, it's for we can invest side by side with you, but also we bring our expertise to that's help the business become the successful too. And I think that's really yeah. important. I was that, that right out of the gates? Was that, did that happen for you right out of the gates, Magic? In terms of uh, people being responsive to the ideas, the innovative thoughts that you had to change their business? Well, look what, what Howard Schultz did. Great example. Yep. He took it, he took the advice, we changed the dessert, we tweaked the, the, uh, the music, uh, my man right there, what's your favorite music group? Uh. <laughs> Come on. What's Guns and Roses. I can. Hootie and the Blowfish. So I had to take Hootie and the Blowship out of mine, right? So Hootie, Hootie, you cool, but you not that cool. So Hootie had to come out. Right. And who'd you put in? And, you know, you had to put in Four Tops, Temptation, Prince, Michael Jackson. Um, and that know, made a difference. That, I mean, that, that's it makes a difference because a minority can feel at home then, right? Yeah. So I went from investing in just urban America to now investing in all types of companies, you know, because I know business and I can help my partners. They bring an expertise, I bring an expertise. We come together and we make sure that the business is successful. And that's what it's all about. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I, I think there are two reasons why this arbitrage exists. Number one is laziness. Two, um, and this is more important, subtly nuanced. I think a lot of folks let their lack of context cloud their judgment. And you know, I have a story to tell with it that I think uh, is a bit telling. So this is my very first pitch I've ever given. Uh, venture pitch? My first venture pitch okay. ever. Um, it was our seed round, and I was sitting across the table um, from a woman I really respected and, and love, even to this day. And I was pitching our first brand, Skull Bevel, uh, and it's a brand that like, eliminates the razor bump shaving irritation issue for men and women, right? A pretty big deal. I remember I got to slide, it was probably 12 or 13, and I talked about proactive, the acne system, right? Uh, as a representative type of company that solved a really acute health and beauty problem. I'll never forget, like she looked at me and she said, Tristan, I'm not sure issues related to razor bumps and irritation are as big a societal issue as issues related to acne. At which point, I, I got it, right? But then I thought all that she had to do before she said that was get on the phone with 10 black men and with assured confidence, nine of them would have said, this is the worst thing I've had to deal with. She could have gotten on the phone with 10 white men and with assured confidence, at least four of them would have said this. But she came with a matter of fact statement prior to her doing the due diligence to actually figure it out, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, it's a problem, right, uh, for her, uh, because she missed out on the opportunity. Right. Um, but I also see it as an opportunity for myself, right? Because if That's they're the thinking like that, then that means that other people are not gonna get funded for this sort of thing. So it's a bit of a catch-22, right? Like how do we quickly run, prove this market set? Uh, and by that time, it'll be too late for anyone else to come Troy, in. Troy, Troy, you might wanna tell him how lucky he is. Oh, I'm very lucky. <laughs> when I first started, is that all you got? <laughs> is that your story? I got started 30 years ago. Institutional capital was not ready to it invest wasn't in easy urban right out of gates. Oh my goodness. All the rings. Man, I got rings. turned down five times before CalPERS and CalSTRS and all them invested with me. I went up there, that committee, like I'm sitting down there, the committee is up here. <laughs> first when they meet me, they Magic, get a picture. <laughs> as soon as the, the session started, oh, to yeah. get some money and funding. Oh man, that it, it got real tight again. <laughs> right. They turned me down five times, and I went back up there the sixth time. And this is you—you you thought, see, you had it easy. That's easy. <laughs> the sixth time, the committee. One of the guys said to me, he said, "Why should we invest in you?" Because no other minority has ever come up here and asked Interesting. us. No one had ever asked. Nobody. Never, and yeah. I was, I'm sitting there, how can I answer that, yeah. right? Yeah. But he said, this is the key. He said, we're going to give you $50 million. If you over-deliver with the $50 million, you can come back and get $100 more million. Huh. So I bought a shopping center for $28 million, 40% occupied, took it to 100% occupied, resold that center for $58 million. I mean, I'm sorry, for $50 million took the 22 million back up, they said, oh, you do no business, and there's money to be made in urban America. And that's what changed everything. So I over-delivered to CalPERS, right. and then that opened the floodgates. And I'm sure, Troy, you must have a lot, of, well, and yourself as well. No, and, wh and what that just reminds me of, just as you're saying it, is this whole idea around pattern recognition, yeah. right? You know, you get guys like 
um, Paul Graham who says, anybody that looks like Mark Wahlberg, I'm gonna, uh, uh, Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, I'm gonna write him a check, right? You know, um, <laughs> and, and but it, it's telling, just, just that, that, sort of, um, that, that sort of statement. And, um, and one of the things that, that, that we recognize, this is my first time even fundraising, and by the way, if I would have known fundraising was this process, I would have never raised the money. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know. But you know, I learned I learned a lot along along the way. But you know, I've always bootstrapped my my business. Coming from hip hop, we got told no on everything, right? Because you know, we're we're starting with a, with, with a music that people just didn't understand. So when we went to the polygrams and the larger labels, it was. No, we you know we we can't invest in that in, in, in that sort of music. So it forced us into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So I think the most shocking thing for me, and this is just being complete completely candid, you know, when we've we've made some really we've been lucky enough and strategic enough to get into some incredible investments, and um and Uber, done, Lyft, yeah, Uber, Lyft, Warby Parker. I say that's Dropbox. great. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we got into some really great deals and you know we did the work and you know um, and but as we as like as we're going out fundraising um, you you'd be really surprised uh, from the reaction yeah so you know I just you thought that in certain instances it's just it's, it's, it's very very telling when you go down the Bible belt the fu the, fu yeah. the fundraise now Beatriz how many of the investors that you pitched? had ever been pitched by a Latina entrepreneur doing a, a Great business. question. I don't know, but there were no Latinos in the room, or no women in the room, wow. except when I came to Upfront that I met you and your fantastic CFO, who I'm yes. a fan of. Um, but before that, I mean, we, and, and I grew up in Mexico, so I never had the problem of feeling like a minority. I was the majority in a country of Mexicans. Uh, so no problem there. But um, when, uh, and I moved to the US for college, and. Uh, when we were fundraising a few years back. So I don't have that stigma as far as like, oh, I'm noticing that there's no l women or no Latino. Yeah. No, I just grew up among too many Mexicans. And so it was kind of refreshing to see other nationalities. But when we did our fundraising, and probably after 20 meetings um, in all of our rounds, we just closed our Series C, but um, I, it just really dawned on me like, wow, is it just me? Or yeah. did we never see a minority in any of these meetings yeah. or a woman? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was really depressing if you think about yeah. it. But I think to add to everybody's point, and, and I have a story too that kind of <laughs> sums it all up, but um, you, all you really need is an opportunity when you talk to a, a talk about mentorship, or when you talk about somebody who believes and says, I will give you 50 million, and if you prove yourself, you come back. Um, and that's a very big, just goal that we have as a company. And, and, and for me, as a woman, as a Latina, just something I feel a big responsibility to, to continue to do in my life. But um, today we posted a video, um, uh, hope everybody watches and shares it. Um, and we're launching our big initiative for voter registration, uh, which is called We Are America. And in that video, we have this guy called Richard Montañez. I don't know if anybody knows him, but he's an EVP of marketing at PepsiCo. Uh, but a few years back, he was the janitor of Pepsi. Uh, and one day, as he Hold was- on, he, he is now the EVP at Pepsi, of, of, EVP of, of marketing. marketing. Uh -huh. And he was the janitor three a years few, ago. A few years a back, Latino he was- A Latino guy. 
Uh -huh. Richard Montañez, Mexican-American, very humble uh, beginnings. So, um, and he's in, in, in this video, and I, I, I love it. It brings tears to my eyes. So this man was mopping the offices at Pepsi, and the marketing team was playing a video from the CEO, um, and they were going to give an opportunity. When you talk about somebody believing in you and giving you an opportunity, they were going to give an opportunity to any employee to pitch something that was relevant for the company. So they had done this great video with, where, where the CEO was saying, you know, we want every employee to feel like an owner and come give us your mm -hmm, ideas. Mm -hmm. So this also speaks to the point of having the insight into the culture, understanding where your pain point is of something that you are not getting and you absolutely need as an underserved market. So this man thought, okay, I'm going to pitch. Since I've, I'm a little kid, I've been opening my chips, any kind of chips. Uh, if anybody's Latin here, they will get this. If not, I'm sorry. But we open our chips and we put a lot of lime juice on it and then a lot of like liquid chili on them and they taste very good. Uh, so this man thought, wow, why don't we create these Cheetos that already have the spice and the lime juice? Uh, so he's the inventor of Flaming Hot Cheetos, who's now, he's a millionaire, he's a very big philanthropist, he still works at Pepsi, he's a very <laughs> inspirational speaker. Um, but you could see how, you know, the thing that bothers me a lot about um, diversity talk is that it almost feels like, listen, you need to hire the diverse people so your numbers don't look so bad in the press and because you owe it to us to or hire. Je Jesse Jackson shamed you into. It's horrifying. Guys, we really don't need the charity of anybody <laughs> in this country. This country needs the insights of our cultures to make money, to be successful. Yeah. Good point. So, you know, we're all business people yes. here, and you have to change that mentality to really think as a business. You don't need to like us. You don't need to get us. You don't need to like our food, our music, our pies that you sell at Starbucks, <laughs> you know, our chili potato chip, none of that. But when we are not the, the, the minority anymore and your business depends on us, you really need to think why you need to be diverse. Because at the end of the day, we can enhance the bottom line. That's at the end of the day. And, and I think that that's what's really important, yeah. that we, can make, we know how to make money for our investors exactly. and ourselves. And we know how to run businesses. And I think that's very important. And I think one thing we can, if we could do, especially with this audience, is, is that you know, it's still tough for us to get, you know, computers and uh, the internet in our, in the poorest mm -hmm. inner cities. And I think what we should try to do is make sure that uh, we can all come together and make that happen. Like I built 15 technology centers in urban America for kids can have access to a computer. And this is a powerful group and we need to make sure, besides making money, we're all gonna do that. That's yeah. what we do very well everybody in this audience, but also, too, at the same time, when you, uh, you can do well and do good at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that uh, if anything can happen out of this, hopefully we can do that, impact the black and brown community in doing that. Yeah, completely agree. In fact, that's a good segue, because I'd love to talk about the pipeline of new innovators uh, of color. Um, that have the ability to, to do what you're saying, to do well and do good at the same time, um, particularly from an innovation standpoint. I think that's the theme. I think 
There's been all kinds of research around diversity as a prerequisite for innovation. Meaning, if you're, to your point, if you don't have the context, if you're not bringing in lots of different thoughts and different cultures, you're not going to be optimized when it comes to innovating. So Tristan, I don't know if you want to talk about that, because I think uh, I, I don't see enough Tristan Walkers that are swinging for the fences from an innovation standpoint. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts and others' thoughts on what it's going to take for us to, to nurture the next generation. So. Um... I grew up Queens, New York, projects, welfare, all that, right? And I remember I had uh, one goal in life, and I was to get as wealthy as possible as quickly as possible. I realized there are three ways to do it. Uh, the first was to be an actor or an athlete. That didn't work out for me too well. Uh, the, the second way was to work on Wall Street. I did it, had the great fortune to do it, hated it. Um, and I was like, damn, I've already exhausted two of the three. The last one was entrepreneurship. And at that point, you know, I said, I'm going to apply to this school. Uh, it's called Stanford. It's as far away from Wall Street as possible. And fortunately, I got in, and I landed down there and realized Silicon Valley existed. I'm like, man, what an amazing place, right? Like, other 24-year-olds not only like, getting wealthy, but fundamentally changing the world. And I'll never forget that, that uh, second year of business school, I read this book, and I'd encourage all of you if you, if you haven't read it yet. It's called Race Against the Machine, uh, written by an MIT professor. And I'll probably butcher his thesis a little bit, but it's kind of as follows. Um, the gap between the rich and the poor is as stark as it's ever been. It's getting worse. There is no middle class, and it won't ever be here ever again. Right, a uh, pretty ominous kind of proposition. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. His argument is that folks at the, on the 1% are leveraging technology in ways that make them a hell of a lot more productive, while folks at the bottom are not. Uh, now, when we consider this, like a lot of the folks at the bottom happen to be uh, folks of color. Now, does this make sense? If we have the greatest consumer demographic on the planet not being the best producer demographic on the planet. And when I talk about this economic opportunity being the greatest of my lifetime, I think that is it. Um, so that, that book actually inspired me uh, to do two things. Number one, think about, all right, well, where's the opportunity, right? Uh, you know, if you read the A1 of the Wall Street Journal 15 years ago, you read about Symantec and Cisco. Like, what are those companies? What do they do, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, today, it's like Snapchat and Twitter and Uber. Like, these are technologies that we can touch. Much of these technologies that uh, this demographic group is actually affecting in immeasurable ways. Uh, and that led me to kind of starting an organization called Code 2040, a not-for-profit organization, uh, where we get the highest performing black Latino engineering undergraduates internships out in the valley and provide them with all the tools they need to be incredibly successful. So we give them media training, mock on our interviews, intimate one-on-one -on -one fireside chats with tech luminaries, et cetera, et cetera, uh, 12-week program. Uh, we've uh, had a whole bunch of fellows have gone through the program. Fantastic. Guess what? 90% plus full-time offer rate the best engineers, right, coming from these companies saying that they can't find them anywhere. Yeah. And I'll just leave you with one, one thing, and this is how I call their bullshit. Um, they say we find the best and brightest at the best schools. Well, our first fellows program, we had a 4.7 on a 5.0 MIT uh, computer science, co-president of a school, and varsity athlete. Mm. Like, and he had no idea Silicon Valley existed. Yeah. That's crazy to me, right? Yeah. So it starts with finding them first. Uh, and then making them more aware. As much as folks talk about networking in Silicon Valley, I think the biggest issue is actually awareness. The fact that I did not know Silicon Valley existed until I was 24 is a fundamental problem. Yeah, it is. Troy, what are your thoughts on that? I, I know, just, I'd love you to take a perspective of being someone that's great at identifying talent, because that's what you've been able to do all your life. No, How do no, you think about no, it? And it's, fun, it's funny because just when you think about and, and having Irving up here, 
if we treated computer science the same way we treated athletics in urban communities, right? So the fact that you're putting your, these uh, technology centers in these communities is a great article. I think it's Bloomberg Business Week um, this week, actually. And they're talking about, um, I think it's Howard University. And they went in to do yeah. recruiting at Howard and almost like this failed experiment. And, um, and a lot of those students were just starting computer science as they were going into college, right? If we started and we had a system in place similar to the AAU system in basketball, <laughs> where true. at seven years old, eight years old, you're identifying that talent, and you, and, you, and you basically have structure. The way basketball works, you got it from community to AAU to, high, to, to the high school to college all the way through the NBA, this sort of tracking yeah. system. And, it's, and we need those sort of systems in place. You know, it's, I think what, in the NBA, it's only room for what, 450 jobs? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and, and then tech and then entrepreneurship, you know, is exponential. So being able to create those opportunities early on and, and to Tristan's point, being able to expose that pipeline of kids to this larger opportunity. And, yeah. and also let them feel comfortable when they come in. Because, yeah. you know, if, if you are walking into those rooms, and you know, it's not people from similar experiences and similar backgrounds. Yeah. You know, that's it, that's a tough environment for you to last in. So, right. and tech tech is becoming sexier than athletics, in, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just thanks a lot, Tristan. Well, <laughs> touche. But you know, you think about it. Like the the technologies that we can touch are affecting culture in immeasurable yeah. ways yeah. from the folks who are catalyzing culture. Yeah. That's right. Like that to me is the most exciting proposition like yeah. ever. But so, so, right? Silicon Valley will 100% miss the boat without, without, without a question because yep. you, you have other areas in the country that I feel are more div culturally diverse, not, not even just racially diverse, but in Silicon Valley, I'm, I'm just being completely candid, you, you, you know, it's I'm talking like it's places where you have great art cultures, food culture, music culture, theater culture, Broadway, um, you know, nightclubs, all you know, all of these things or whatever. And it's such a bubble, you know. So when people refer, it's it's really, really a bubble. So I think you, history repeats itself. You know, I, re I remember at one point when New York was the epicenter of the music business. Yeah, it's dead. Yeah, it's yeah. dead. Yeah. Completely dead. What we do is uh, um, digital media, but um, obviously in our office we have no problem um, uh, with diversity. We are able to find the really bright and fantastic Latinos that, that are colleagues of ours. Sometimes that's what they say the excuse is, they can't of find course. the talent. Uh, that's always the excuse, and, and coming from traditional media before Me Too, um, the excuse from networks or studios were this, was the same, and a very popular hashtag, Oscar So White, um, it really speaks to that as well. And every time I would meet with a network head um, or studio head, they would tell me, uh, you know, tell me who's the next hot, you know, Guaron or Lubeski or, um, um, because we can't find them. We can't find the Latin talent. I'm like, well, my question was exactly that. Like, where are you looking, right? Like, the, I don't even think they know where to look for this talent. Yeah. 
And, um, and what we do at MeToo that we're very, very proud of um, in a very different way than investing in, in entrepreneurs or, or companies that where you can make people thrive, we invest in, in our talent. But, but we do want to be that company that nurtures them to be entrepreneurial. And, and there's no culture of that um, in traditional media for Latinos here or, or abroad there. It's a very old, old studio system where you are employee number 3,400. And, um, you should be grateful uh, to have a job and an opportunity. You will never have back end. Um, you will never be encouraged to be entrepreneurial. And, um, and I come from that. I was one of those employee numbers uh, uh, in one of these big uh, mega companies uh, in the past. Um, grateful to have learned what I did not want to do uh, in my future. So here we absolutely um, take every single creator, whether they're in front or behind the camera, and want to foster them and encourage them to be entrepreneurial. And, and you see it with this generation. Millennials are very entrepreneurial by nature. So um, you see it even with a, a YouTube star where they, they talk about building their brand, right, when, when they're working on their channel or their videos. Um, so we wanted to be that company and, and work very hard every day. And I obviously, I, I'm very familiar with everything that you guys do in your own incubators and accelerators. Um, and we, we try to do it in our, in our own way where we are empowering these Latino youth to be, to, to be different, to think different, to aspire to more. Um, and it's a, an amazing place to be, a great opportunity, like you say, to be sitting um, in this day and age where it's that intersection of the boom of digital video, uh, population growth, uh, Latinos over-indexing in digital consumption. And yes, uh, we are very, very lucky to be the largest digital media company for this demographic, but there's no, a big no, responsibility no, 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 that comes with no, that. No, you're not. No, you're not lucky. You, you, you're smart. You know what you were doing. I don't, want, I don't want this audience to think that you were lucky. You, you knew how, what your audience wanted. You knew what the customer wanted, and you've over-delivered to that customer. You gave them a home that they could go to and people who look like them are on that site and on and on and on. And so, no, you wasn't lucky and you, you got great business uh, acumen and sense and you, you had a great strategy and you executed. I, I respect all these four people. I just came into the tech sector. This man here is like my hero when it comes to that. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Uh, when it comes to the tech, cry, you, you, have, <laughs> you have done more than, than most. And also, our moderator is in doing great things with upfront. And so, Tristan building his business and yourself. And so, I just came into this sector um, and, and trying to understand it. Now, my core business is not tech, but I'm, I'm getting into investing in tech. You know, I just launched another fund. We just launched it, what, uh, January, basically, an infrastructure fund. How large is that fund? We just secured yesterday a billion dollars. Wow. So <clears throat> we are excited about what we're doing. We'll probably do a billion five, but we haven't gone out in the street. And this is overseas money. And uh, because President Obama just said it's going to be about one one to $12 trillion problem that they have in terms of infrastructure in the United States. So they're gonna have to spend that type of money to fix all the rail and roads and on and on and on. So we're excited about being in that space because man, we're right in the sweet spot. 
So my efforts now are concentrating on that as well as the other things that I do. But the articles that I've read on everybody here and the things that Troy has been doing, Troy and I have been friends, and I just marvel at his knowledge too. This is not some dude just sitting up here that was in the entertainment space and now getting into, this guy's a genius, for real. And so Tristan is very well educated and he's gonna have a successful business. And you, man, a billion people <laughs> looking at me. I mean, you're doing great. So we're not sitting here saying, hey, we want something. Cause no, you don't have to hand us anything. If you wanna do business, you wanna have a partner that can execute, know what they're doing, please let's partner, let's do some things. And I said, let's partner. And because I'm, I look for partnerships, that's what I look for. Because you can teach me some, I can teach you some, I play my role, I put up my money, you put up your money, and let's go be successful. So I hope that uh, we have enlightened you about minorities in this space. You need more, for sure. Um, you have to look like America looks, because Absolutely. right now the tech space don't look like America. But uh, uh, we're excited to be here, and thank you for giving us this uh, this, well, thank, thank you, this afternoon, Maddie. and thank your bosses too, because this was very important. Yeah. So thank you. Well, well, thank all of you. I just, if you could just join me in thanking the panel. This is awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. everybody.